in the background you're hearing Into the Black by The Chromatics, a band that recently broke up. Speaking of music that I discover through TV and movies, my first exposure to The Chromatics was via the soundtrack to the movie Drive with Ryan Gosling. Speaking of Ryan Gosling, The Gray Man will be premiering on Netflix this weekend and expect to hear a review of that upcoming. But Night Drive by The Chromatics was the inspiration for Nicholas Wending Refn's film Drive. He listened to the album while planning the production. He actually wanted the Chromatics to do the soundtrack, although he was overruled by the studio and ended up with an excellent, excellent score by Cliff Martinez, which is nonetheless extremely influenced by the Chromatics. The Chromatics have an interesting history in that they began as a one-man band, someone who's recording on a four-track in their bedroom, a reference to yet another piece of music we'll be discussing soon on this podcast, and then became a four-piece punk rock band, a very noisy, punky version of the band, which changed yet again once Ruth Radelit joined as their lead singer and guitarist and brought the influence of Italian disco and the dream pop sound that they're probably mostly remembered for. The next time I encountered them was in, once again, speaking of Ryan Gosling, his directorial debut, a crazy, crazy, terrible, (laughs) but fascinating film called Lost River. And if you do want to watch that, by the way, and you have a library card, install the Canopy app on your TV or your phone, K-N-O-P-Y, and use your library card to log in where you can watch the movie for free. This is a bizarre film, obviously influenced by David Lynch, David Lynch being my favorite filmmaker. And David Lynch, despite the failure of this crazy but ambitious film, apparently was a a fan of this film, which aped him. So much so that he also was introduced to the Chromatics via the Ryan Gosling film. And then had the Chromatics perform Shadow, another one of their most famous tracks, in the final moments of the premiere episode of the most recent Twin Peaks revival. And tying everything back into that daisy chain, this is not officially part of the daisy chain, by the way, but just a little commentary on it. They've also covered Kate Bush. So that's the artist I wanted to point out a little bit, a very cinematic, Act, which unfortunately just broke up recently, but I'm sure they'll have more interesting things to do in the future that are all over soundtracks. If you look at their soundtrack listings, this very cult, very underground band that has rarely had any kind of mainstream success, maybe in a TV commercial here and there, has been used hundreds of times across different movies and t- TV episodes. And it's easy to hear why. And it's just great music to drive to. So that's our musical moment 
I'm trying to include more musical content here on the show. Another passion of mine and something that I don't get to invest as much time in anymore. So hopefully all of you are enjoying that additional content. As far as this daisy chain of histories and songs that we've been building, I do plan to have a Spotify playlist with all those songs in there, as well as a YouTube playlist on our YouTube channel. And believe it or not, we actually have a Twitter account. We have a Facebook account. We have a YouTube channel, but pretty much untended at this point. And I do plan to roll out some additional features there via social media. So you can interact there if you'd like to as well, or at least investigate some of that content. In today's episode, at the top of the episode, a spoiler-free and relatively brief review of Nope, the new Jordan Peele film. There's actually not a ton to say about the film, minus spoilers, so there will be a spoiler section as well at the very end of the episode, so do check the time codes. I definitely do not want to spoil this film, which is just being released today in theaters. But if you have seen the film or you come back to this episode later, do check my spoiler section of the review because I think there's many, many things to say about this film, a film that I honestly didn't love, but as often is the case with Jordan Peele's films, definitely worth discussing. Beyond that, The Old Man, the Jeff Bridges show on FX and Hulu, wrapped up just this week, and Celia and I will be discussing that finale, how satisfying it was, and our experience of the show, which started off so strongly here. You can check our very enthusiastic early reviews of the first couple episodes of that show and how it in our opinion, has gone really downhill. And I'll let you know in that conversation as to whether we feel the show corrected itself to some extent in those final two episodes. Also, we'll be discussing the Apple TV Plus TV show, Blackbird, this serial killer thriller based on a true case. And there is a lost episode or a lost conversation to this podcast between Celia and myself, where we discuss the first couple episodes of that show, and we were enthusiastic about it, but it was hard to get a read on that show early on. But I think now is finally the time, with just two episodes to go, to have a discussion about this, because I found this week's episode really a great point for audiences to jump on board of this TV show, because I think finally the show got to delve into the really fascinating psychology, really, I think, the potential that was there with this material. Once again, check the show notes if you want to just listen to some of that content, if you do decide to come back later and listen to the spoiler section of Nope after you've seen the film. It is at the end of this episode. As always, if you'd like to support the show, give us a five-star rating on your podcatcher of choice. With a simple tap on Apple Podcasts, for example, you increase our profile and help other listeners discover us. Send us your feedback at any time. Need some introduction at gmail.com. And as I mentioned, you'll see more social media activity. I'll Make sure to announce them as we add supplemental content out there on those different channels. And of course, via social media or just word of mouth, please do recommend us to your friends and family if you think they'll appreciate the conversation. On the podcast next week, another recap episode of Better Call Saul. We've picked up a lot of listeners now that Saul is approaching its finale. Walter White and Jesse Pinkman are rumored to be back on this very episode, this upcoming episode of Better Call Saul. You'll get our reactions, Sona and I, of that episode on Tuesday. Of course, catch up on our previous conversations. We have recaps of this entire current season of Better Call Saul, if you're catching up on it now. Check the feed for all of those. There will be another musical segment there where we continue this daisy chain of musical artists as well. And for next week's weekend episode, it's actually a quiet weekend, which is going to be followed by a very noisy weekend. Many things coming out the following week weekend. Too many to cover, honestly. So for next weekend's show, 
it's possible that my sister and I will be having a conversation about Station Eleven, a show that was kind of overlooked last year and now is getting a lot of attention via the Emmy nominations and critics lists. And we have both caught up on it relatively recently. The Gray Man, the new Ryan Gosling Netflix blockbuster, their most expensive production from the Russo brothers, the directors of the Avengers films, the most recent Avengers films, was released this weekend. And I'll probably be catching up on it in the next few days. And my review will probably be there in that subsequent episode. So that's what you can look forward to. If you subscribe, you'll be notified as soon as those episodes become available. So with that out of the way, let's get into the review. First, completely spoiler-free, of Jordan Peele's new film, Nope. Did you see a UFO in that cloud? Yep. Nope. I ain't never seen yep. nothing like this. So Jordan Peele emerged as one of the creators of the Key and Peele comedy team and had massive success there. One of the earlier comedians to really make their reputation via the sharing of their clips on YouTube and other platforms. As popular as that show was, the virality of a lot of those clips is really what put them on the map. And then they disbanded and Jordan Peele has gone in the direction of becoming this writer, director, producer powerhouse. And one of the rare directors like M. Night Shyamalan, even now, but obviously at his heyday, at his peak of his success, and maybe more notably Quentin Tarantino, in that the marquee name for all their projects is their own name. Quentin Tarantino, despite getting huge stars in all of his projects, is really the brand that is being sold on all his films. Another corollary that makes it very similar to both M. Night Shyamalan and Quentin Tarantino one arguably a negative correlation, one a positive, is that he's one of the few filmmakers, and of course, once again, Tarantino comes directly to mind, that is actually having a conversation with the audience and with the critics. His next project is a direct conversation with the culture at large about the culture, but also about the previous film. Once again, something you rarely see. Most films are about themselves, an action thriller is about the characters within the action thriller primarily. And while there are many more serious filmmakers, like the Coen brothers to name one, where the film really doesn't make sense outside of the scope of its own thematics, what makes them different than these particular filmmakers, Tarantino and Peele in this case, is that the conversation is about the thematics of the film. It's not about a conversation with the viewer. And Peele is very much in that lineage, whether it's Tarantino, whether it's Alfred Hitchcock, many, many years ago, or arguably somebody like Roman Polanski, also a big influence on Jordan Peele. So a very ambitious persona to embrace as a filmmaker, but it worked out by the happenstance of the fact that Get Out just captured the zeitgeist and became such a phenomenal success. I can imagine a different set of circumstances where there wasn't all this hype about what is this guy thinking he's doing about this horror movie and then just the conversation that blew up around it, where that film would have been more of an arthouse film and his career trajectory would have been very, very different. But instead, the film became an utter phenomena, a cultural phenomena, was made for $4 million and made like $300 million and more than that became so ubiquitous on streaming platforms, home video, etc., 
that is one of those really rare instances where somebody really hits the ground running so hard, so fast, that honestly, they're set up for a fall. Once again, a correlation I'd make to M. Night Shyamalan, who had actually directed numerous unsuccessful earlier films, non-horror films, but then really captured the cultural fascination with The Sixth Sense. And then disappointed everybody by putting out Unbreakable, a film that in retrospect has gotten a huge amount of fan love, but at the time was considered a flop, by the way, only in comparison to The Sixth Sense, because it did make over $250 million worldwide, which of course would be much larger today if you adjust for inflation. And in some ways that correlates to the reaction to us, which built on the goodwill of Get Out was equally successful. Another film that cost, I think, $20 million and made around $300 million and had a massive, massive opening weekend. I think the second biggest R-rated opening weekend in history for a non, uh, non-sequel, but did not have the long tail that Get Out has had. But similarly to Unbreakable, a film that I think in retrospect has garnered, if anything, only more goodwill from its audience. This leads us to the third film in this cycle. And if we want to look at M. Night, this is Signs, another UFO film, maybe not coincidentally. If you want to correlate it to Tarantino, this would be Jackie Brown, a film that years later is considered maybe one of his very best works, but at the time also a very big disappointment with audiences. So that's the baggage of this project. His biggest budget by far, $40 million, I believe, but still very modestly budgeted. So this film will almost certainly, just on his name, be profitable. Now, whether it'll have the legs of something even like us, that remains to be seen. And that's where I am very conflicted on this film. I would say to you, no spoilers here, but I have to talk about spoilers later in this episode to explain my conflicted feelings about this film. I would say if you go in there and you can somehow watch this film and appreciate it purely as a thriller, just a set of mysteries and then truly thrilling, I not even metaphorically, (laughs) like literally was grabbing the armrest multiple times here within the film. And if you can appreciate just the thriller aspects of the film, I think you will be very satisfied. The spectacle is beautiful. It's beautifully made film. But importantly here, I would say that this does not have as much of the comedy that we've seen in his previous work, although there are definitely comedic elements, but mostly just reacting to ridiculous circumstances rather than laugh out loud jokes in the film itself. And secondly, this is not a horror movie. I mean, if you're expecting to be terrified, there is nothing here that compares to the existential terror of Get Out, this sense of being trapped by the expectations of polite society and the constant paranoia of that, or the home invasion terror of us. This is very much like a sci-fi action horror film. We can compare it to something like Predator rather than something that is truly terrifying. I guess if you're really afraid of UFOs, this would be terrifying, but I'm not very afraid of UFOs, which by the way, I have to put that out there as well. I don't find UFOs terrifying at all. I think they're kind of silly. So that is my going in position. But going all the way back to Signs, a movie that's pretty stupid, by the way, but hugely successful at its time, it nonetheless is very scary because it basically is a remake of Night of the Living Dead with aliens rather than zombies. And this film, in many ways, is a remake as well. And I will not tell you what it's a remake of until I get to spoilers because it would be a big spoiler. Another issue I have with the film is that I feel that the cast in general is underserved. Maybe, not in all cases, Kiki Palmer... Brandon Perea, 
and Michael Wincott all give very memorable smaller roles. Maybe not Kiki Palmer, who basically is a co-lead. But Daniel Kaluuya, who just is coming off of an Academy Award win, really has most of his charisma sapped out of him intentionally for this extremely depressed character and doesn't really get to show off this magnetism that he's shown in many of his other roles. But even worse is Steven Yeun, who is such an incredibly charismatic actor and is given this backstory and given some really important scenes in the film. I mean, thematically, so much of the film relies on his backstory, which is kind of confusing when you watch it the first time since it doesn't seem to pay off in the ways you'd expect. I really feel like they're underutilized here. So what are my final takeaways? If you embrace the film purely as a popcorn thriller, you'll probably come away pretty satisfied. And try not to think about the dense thematics of this film as you're watching it. I am the type of person who cannot not engage with that level of the film. So I found it distracting. And I would say this is my general commentary on Peel's trajectory as a filmmaker that Get Out, the thematics and the plot of the film are so much in lockstep that being distracted by the thematics is not a distraction at all. It actually enriches the original, the, the experience of watching the film. It adds to that paranoia. I think what's began with us, which is a film, by the way, that I have issues with the ending of that film in that it over explains things and some things don't quite make sense. But I actually believe that film is the better film between Get Out and Us. It's way more ambitious and way more interesting thematically, I think. But that is where we start to see the themes and the experience of the film are pushing against each other. And I would say that is my complaint in this film, this third film. The themes of the film and the experience of the film seem to actually be working against each other. And it simply got in the way of me enjoying it. Anecdotally, it seems like people are embracing this. Maybe people are simply watching it and they're just taking away the funny bits, the thrilling bits, and all the stuff that makes them scratch their head, they're just ignoring, and therefore they can really enjoy it. And I think if you watch it that way, you can really enjoy this film purely as a thrill ride and a beautiful, beautiful visual spectacle. All right, so that is the spoiler-free review. If you've liked Peel's previous films, I don't know if you would love this film, to be honest with you. If you're able to set expectations, not low, but just don't set any expectations because you're not going to get the film you want. You're not going to get that film. And just appreciate the most thrilling aspects of it, I think you'll be satisfied. If you think about it a lot, this film can feel like a very interesting failure, which honestly is kind of where I'm leaning. But I'll walk through all of my feelings on this that I have to, have to get into spoilers to have any kind of clarity on my critique here. But even preparing for this commentary, I have begun appreciating the film more. But maybe one of those films that you appreciate more after the fact than in the moment. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Anyway, tune in, end of this episode, where I get into all of those thoughts as well. Pavlovich, you said something today, told me some things about Abby that I didn't know. Told me that she recruited him. She cultivated him years in advance until she was ready to activate him to help her husband win his war. How many people we ever know that could play the game that way? Did we know any? When I called you to help us escape, I, I knew exactly what I was doing. I was protecting the bravest and most noble woman I'd ever met. Never doubted it. Not then, not since. But suddenly, 
Oh, I'm hearing questions. Is it possible that... Oh, she was using me too. Is it possible that she was cultivating me for an exit strategy? That's a hell of a sign. You can live a whole life certain of so many things and then in a moment it's all up for grabs. We had the wrap-up. <laughs> I'm already going to get negative here, but we're going to have the wrap-up of the, the finale here for The Old Man, a show that we were very excited about, at least I was, and I think you were as well, in those first couple of episodes. And the show has really just gone downhill ever since that second episode. Honestly, now in retrospect, even that third episode, which I had my issues with, but I kind of forgave. It's really the beginning of the end, <laughs> right after episode two. So anybody who's listening to this, I would say normally I tell people don't listen to a conversation if you don't want spoilers, but uh, we will set some context for this show and then just attack it because not to just be negative. I don't want to just be negative on things, but I do want to talk about the things that go so wrong in this show and the ridiculous decisions that were made because I just, I don't understand. I cannot understand what the decisions here by these showrunners and what I was going to say at the top of this episode, by the way, was that I was pretty certain this was a season finale, but I literally had to check the website to say, is this a season finale? This does not feel <laughs> like the last episode of the season. It feels like the episode before the season finale. Exactly. Exactly. And it's weird because they've been over explaining all their bad yep. decisions the whole time, yet they end in this manner. Yep. That's going to require hours of explanation in season two. <laughs> oh my God. No more explanations. But there has to be. <laughs> right. <laughs> Would you come back for season two, by the way, be before we even get into this? Are you going to actually watch the second season of the show? I have this problem and I need therapy for this, but I don't ever like to not finish anything, no matter how ridiculous, mundane. Like, I feel like I made a commitment. So now I have to finish this painting or I have to finish this interview or I have to finish this dumb show. Even <laughs> if I fast forward through stuff, I feel like I have to still tune in. It's what I do with Westworld. Oh, I can't watch that. It's so impossible to watch. Yes. But because I watched the first season, I'm like, I have to at least fast forward it or put it on mute in the background while I fold laundry, but I have to feel like I finished it. So to answer your question, I might come back. I, I, I will, because I can't help it. I will come back for season two. To quote the movie that I reviewed in the same podcast. Nope. <laughs> and uh, speaking of Westworld, by the way, there's only a few people that I actually follow. I mean, there's a lot of critics that I admire, I often disagree with their opinions, but there's a handful of critics that I follow that I kind of follow what they suggest. They work usually on the same wavelength. <clears throat> and there's been a couple of them that have been stating that Westworld made a comeback this season. And I watched the very first episode of this season and I was not a fan of it. But now, since I had nothing to watch last night, I actually caught up on the show. I caught up to the current fourth episode. And this is the episode that everybody said, it's back on track, baby. And the twist, which I'm not going to give away, but the twist in this episode was so infuriating to me. I'm like, this, this is what I came back for. I am 100% off. No one's going to talk me back into this again. This show is over for me. It's over. It's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. It's terrible. Yes, terrible. 
yeah, I have no emotional connection to any of the characters. I don't know who they are. Like it could be a clone. It could be the original. I have, it's, it's a pointless exercise to watch that. They show. are all unlikable. Yes. So you don't, you're not missing anything. There's no one I like. You don't know who you're watching at any given time. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Also, you're like, are you a robot? Wait, is yes. that one a robot? Yeah. Oh, wait a second. No, wait, that one's a robot too. Right. It's crazy. Is this the original but, version? Is this the original version? Or is this like a clone of that version? It's it's like, who who cares? Who cares? Yeah, why it's are ridiculous. there two and three of this person? Right, right. But because I just leave it on as background noise, sometimes it is visually striking though. Like, oh, that's yes. pretty. They spend money oh, on it for I sure. I love her outfit. Her shoes are fabulous. But like, I don't know what's going on. I, I have a gist. Because the same thing is always going on. Nothing changes. Yeah, terrible writing on that uh, show. And, and speaking of which, I think all the problems in this particular episode of, or this season of The Old Man is just terrible writing. And I, in retrospect, feel like those first two episodes directed by John Watts, I've multiple times have called out the excellent directing there. I really feel like the reason those two episodes worked so well is that the director knew how to massage the material, even with all its weaknesses, for what it was worth. And nobody else running this show, touching the show since then has had any idea how to work with these really terrible scripts. And I think that's the fundamental problem. These are terrible, terrible scripts. And you know, if you're just shooting what's on the page and just reading the dialogue without any kind of additional criticism or, or critical eye as the, you know, the director and the editor of those particular episodes, this is a train wreck. And, and that's basically what's happened to this show, the, the old man. I mean, I, I guess everything I just said could be for Westworld also, but I'm talking about the old man here and uh, the old man, this episode just called episode seven, although it could have been called, don't call me freckles. <laughs> I love that. We can call her freckles now and freckles is violent, it's violent. Yes. I have another alternate title, a better one, I think, which is My Three Dads. <laughs> <laughs> That's too much information. Oh, we're I spoiling this. We're spoiling this. didn't see that coming because it's so cliche that I just figured, no, they're not going to do that. Like, but they did. You know what? I, I don't know if you remember, but in the very first conversation we had about the show in those excellent episodes. Yeah, you worked out the timeline. And I specifically she can't said, see his exactly. daughter. She'd have to be almost 40 sense. years old. She'd have to be almost 40 years old. She'd have to be almost 10 years older than this actress is. And you could say, you know what? They didn't tell us that this is 2022 in the show. So you can say, well, maybe this show takes place five, six years ago. So maybe the math almost works. But I immediately discounted that theory, even though it was the first thing I thought of immediately in the very first episode of the show, because like you said, I'm like, well, they're not going to do that. And for them to not only do that, but to make it like the stinger on the season, I'm like, this is the stinger on the season. <laughs> this is what you came up with. It's so terrible because it's a completely different show yeah. in season two. Yes, yes. It will have to be about how she inherited all this sand, really that what <laughs> right. did she inherit? he had to like terrorize her and kidnap her to then bring him there. I kept thinking this is a horror movie about dementia yeah. and he's sitting there. Does she know? I have so many questions, which I'm telling you the first episode of right. season two is going to be like a million rants to explain all the questions we have because of this twist. 
let's use that as a, a way to um, segue into the kind of table setting here for those who people who haven't watched the entire season. But the amazing thing that's happened to the show, the stakes have changed so fundamentally, but in a horrible way. The beginning of the show is, like you said, about this guy. You know, I made the joke that this is like Rambo. <laughs> a, a sequel <laughs> a sequel to Rambo 3 like 30 years later that this guy is potentially this loner this guy who burned all his bridges on a Jeff Bridges <laughs> pun intended I guess is basically out on his own with his dogs you know these guys these dogs trained to protect him and like what an awesome man on the run spy thriller type concoction here's a guy with no resources who has just his wits and his experience and these two awesome dogs to defend himself against all of the possible obstacles, an entire government coming at him, right? What an awesome, awesome idea. And then what we find out in like episode three is that all of a sudden we introduce this, or I guess it happens right in episode two, but then it escalated in, in episode three, where Zoe, this love interest comes into the show. And we got to talk about that in this particular episode, but then they bring <laughs> her in. But it's funny. <laughs> then we find out his daughter is uh, you know, working within the FBI. And then he knows, by the way, this is like just terrible, lazy writing. He knows obviously what her real identity is and lets her get on that plane and go like right into the lion's den. Uh, why? I don't know, because he's like, she's my daughter too. She's yeah. my daughter. I loved her. I was there for her listening to all her problems and all this crazy stuff is happening. And he's like, no, she's my daughter. She's not your daughter. And it's like that problem of uh, telling us and not showing us that we're supposed to believe all that intimacy he has with the John Lithgow character and her between the two of them is just purely him saying it. He's just him stating it. We have seen nothing of their background. We don't see a flashback to her helping him deal with the death of his son. And I just thought he was she was his like employee. Yeah. Exactly. And he kind of he liked her more than other employees, possibly, you know, the way teachers pets are, because yep. he saw something in her that was, you know, kind of genius or something else familiar, but didn't know what it could be. But no. So let's talk about. So, so the only thing that works in this show, by the way, and it's fundamentally broken anyway, because John Lithgow's character has to be incredibly intelligent and then also incredibly stupid when conveniently it needs to be. We also have the problem that you set up this guy to be this lone wolf who has evaded capture for decades, just using his wits to actually be this billionaire. We still don't know how he got so rich and uh, have all this power and all these resources and then doesn't rely on any of them uh, when he is in danger here. He's like relying on the government to bail him out, the people he's been running away from this whole entire time. So they introduced this whole backstory for him, this Bruce Wayne persona he has for no reason at all. But let's talk about all that ridiculousness and, and say that as bad as that is, it's some skeleton of a decent show and talk about the utter disaster that is the way these female characters are. First of all, the, do the daughter. And that's not even freckles? the worst. Freckles. You right? mean freckles? <laughs> but first of all, the daughter who like, you know, you tell her, you call her freckles and she loses her mind and somehow has become the teacher's <laughs> pet. Not even the teacher's pet, closer to him than a daughter. Like physically assaults them. It doesn't get her kicked out. It gets her promoted. Think about that. Because they admire freckles. So like <laughs> I would be so calling her freckles just to see her twitch. <laughs> but even beyond that, just think about the craziness of First of all, Jeff Bridges allowing her to get on that plane, knowing what's going to happen to her and then keeping that all under wraps until when. And then just think about the stupidity of that logistics. At any time, Hamzad 
could have had her like the second that plane landed and it's just her and John Lithgow on the tarmac. They could have abducted her, taken him, her in. Oh, no, no. But he also wanted to get Jeff Bridges. All he had to do is pick up the phone and say, I have your daughter come here now. And he would have gone there, period. There's no reason for all of this episode to exist. It's insane how stupidly written all the actions in this show are. It's, it's, it's insanity. It's really bad. The wife says the dumbest things yes. to her dictator husband. Yes. Like the most ridiculous stuff. She's just like, you, you don't need to know. I can't tell you. There's this crazy thing. She goes, she's like, I'm ruthless and you are short-sighted. Like, I imagine futures. Right. I'm your yin, I'm your yang. Like, whenever yeah. you're bad, I'm good. When you're when you're kind, I'm ruthless. Yeah, this is all It's so bad. And then she tries to convince him, because he knows something's up, that she is holding back information, as she always had throughout right. this entire time they've been together. She lets right. him know this, like right now, because it's for his own good. And he's like, tell me right now. <laughs> and speaking of just terrible writing, what's nuts is there is that reveal. There's that moment in episode four, whenever it was, where she says all of these exact things to the Jeff Bridges character when he's younger, right? And she says, he can't get this much power this early. And I've been manipulating them and I've been doing this and I've been doing that. This show does not trust the audience for a second. Instead of having some ellipsis where you just see him yelling at her, I can't believe you did this to me. You betrayed me. They literally have her say the exact same dialogue to him. It's just like, yes, we heard all this like two episodes ago. Why are we doing this again? It's insanity. For half an hour. It's a really, really long sequence. Exactly. Yes. But the whole thing is annoying because in this episode, she's just like, trust me, trust me. Mm -hmm. And they are staring at each other like they're in a play or something. Calmly just saying stuff like, wait till morning, maybe you'll feel differently. This is not a normal reaction. This is not what a leader of a country would do if he found out his wife was doing all this stuff behind his back, somehow navigating and manipulating his empire with other empires. This is a really big deal. And they're like, let's let's talk about it again in the morning. And they're just so calm about it. None of this makes sense. And she sounds like a narcissist. Yeah. The way she believes that she has the power and can manipulate the world into her vision and her. It's crazy. It's so narcissistic. And then Jeff Bridges falls in love with her. She's gaslighting everybody around her like a witch or something. I love, by the way, that he says in this very episode that I was I was working her as a possible asset that whole entire time. And now I'm thinking maybe she was working me, which is so ridiculous. Once again, the stupidity of these characters, they have to be geniuses and incredible spies. And then five minutes later, they're total morons that this guy's basically saying, here's this woman who you know, was, if you, to be believed, you know, manipulating all these empires and was pulling all these strings and everything else. And first of all, she gave all that up to like, what, like live on the run in the U S although apparently she became a billionaire unknown to us at the beginning of the show, but apparently that was the case. But beyond that was the fact that he's like, I think she might've been manipulating me. It's like, wait, you mean the woman that you wanted to be an asset because she manipulated all these people without them knowing that she was manipulating them. You think maybe she was trying to manipulate you too? Hmm, let's think about this for a second. It's it's incredibly dumb. And now we find out that they ran off with 
this guy's Dorm. baby. Yep. They just took freckles. She wasn't even and- a baby. She was a. Uh, she was like five years old or something, which makes the math on the age of the actress completely wrong. <laughs> oh, but. I, I don't know. They are going to over-explain this whole thing, though. I bet you season two has the first episode, and they'll even explain her age. You know I do the- like that the little baby actress has like a zillion freckles. Yes. And yes. in my head, I was thinking, did they find this kid who happens to have the same face as this other girl who is her older version? Or did they Use have makeup. a makeup artist come in? It might, it might be makeup. Or it might be special effects. Who knows? Speaking of overwriting everything, I call out a couple of moments here in the show. One of them is when John Lithgow is talking to Jeff Bridges, once again, hitting every theme on the head as hard as possible about this idea of, you know, you, when you pass away, can't, you know, dictate how you're remembered. It is the rememberer, the rememberer. It's (laughs) they're the ones who decide what they remember. I'm like the rememberer. Okay, well, that's, that's a great piece of dialogue there. But even more ridiculous than that, is that sequence where the assassins have figured out that they're being cornered inside of the building. And the one guy, uh, the one guy's partner is looking out the window. The other actor says to him, what's up? And instead of being like, it's quiet out there. And he goes, is that a problem? And he goes, it's the wrong kind of quiet, which would work as dialogue. But that's not what happens on this show. He's like, what's going on? And the guy doesn't say first, it's too quiet out there. He starts saying, there was this son in Cairo. (laughs) and he's talking about like this like morning in Cairo and and it was the wrong kind (laughs) of quiet and I'm just like holy cow like (laughs) we can't just say what's wrong it's quiet out there is that a problem it's the wrong kind of quiet that's it that's all we need we do not need the whole reflection there was this morning when I woke up in Cairo I was 17 it was my first (laughs) he's like stop stop It's so funny because they have great conversations. They say things that are very intelligent. Who else is going to keep an eye on the whole world? The whole world. Not him. Well, they're like, not what? talking about the Jeff. They're not talking about the Jeff Bridges character. They're talking about the um, Joel Gray character, the guy who's uh, this, the guy who's pulling all these strings. So we still don't even know what his overall agenda is. By the way, he like think about that it. That is he, also ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. We know nothing whole- about that guy. Yeah. Think about that. Like, this is the, the, how badly set up the show is. And it's based on a book, by the way. So I don't know if all these plot problems are in that book or if you have to read the book, to even know what the hell's going on. But think about how crazy that Joel Gray character is. This is the guy who knew about Jeff Bridges this entire time, who put his daughter into the FBI, right? So he knows that these two people, his two sons, he calls them. He knows that Hamzad's daughter is that person. He knows everything about what's going on. He then sends an assassin to kill Jeff Bridges, to send him out on the road, and then sends the, an assassin, a guy who's never failed him, by the way, and gives that number to John Lithgow's character, who also sends this other assassin after him, right? So now implicating him in there, potentially putting the assassin out there, uh, you know, on the line, his neck on the line, if he had, hadn't survived that, all in a way to manipulate Hamzad. And I'm like, how did he know these assassins who have never, ever, ever failed him? We're not going to kill this guy. <laughs> you know, like it's all <laughs> nuts. It's None of this makes any sense at all. It's all just convenient scripting and, and stupidity. And speaking of convenient scripting and stupidity, think about how nuts it is that these guys are cornered and they're like, we're completely surrounded. I think there's like 12 or 15 guys and they, A, are able to get out of there in like two minutes flat and then uh, with no problems. And then, but still- 
put their guard down enough where some random woman steps in front of the car and shoots them. So like an army of guys couldn't take them out, but some random lady with a pistol on the corner was able to take them out. Like how did they allow that to happen if they were really as good as they supposedly are earlier in that same sequence? Oh, another really stupid, lazy writing thing. Total cliche is the fact that they're surrounded by all these guys that are like, you know, special ops or whatever. And they're able to like run them all off the road. And then one guy with a pistol, Jeff Bridges, is able to like kill them all like by just shooting out the window. I'm like, this is so lazy and stupid. It's every cliche in the book. No one has thought out how to do any of this cleverly. And it's terrible to be watching Better Call Saul at the same time as this show and think about how they make every event matter and and make sense in the way that, you know, Walter White or Saul Goodman, in the case of A Better Call Saul, how things work out. And then here they're just saying like, oh, we got 15 cars after us. And the guy just like Jeff Bridges just leans out the window, shoots a bunch of times and that's it. They're all dead. It's okay. We're good. Let's just. And by the way, no backup to go intercept us in the middle of town. That's it. We're done. We got those three cars off of us. All good. We're ready to do whatever we want. The government's not going to come after us, by the way. We just killed a bunch of their people. They're not going to care. Everything's cool. One last thing I got to talk about, and then we have to move on to something else. Although there's so many more things I could say about this stupid, stupid show. We haven't even talked about Zoe. They, the thing that has been driving me the most crazy about this whole entire show is introducing the Zoe character and making her. But too, we so don't sexual. know what's up with her. She's no longer there. That's my point. They basically have significantly reduced any kind of credibility. And a lot of these, you know, accruing stupidities in the show are because they have to keep making her logistically make sense in the plot somehow. And then they get rid of her. They dispose of her before the finale. She just goes, okay, see you later. And I'm like, why was she here in the first place? Like, this is nuts. Like, what yeah, was the point? <laughs> there was no point. That's so funny. If they want to bring her back next season, you could have left her at the Airbnb, could have left her in Los Angeles. What the hell are they even doing? Like, this is nuts. How bad this is. It's crazy. Speaking of Better Call Saul, though, I want to throw this in there really quickly. This very week- Don't tell I, me anything. Oh, no, no, not a spoiler. I was saying that I was listening to an interview with uh, Peter Gould, who's the showrunner and the head writer. And this is something that often is said is that a show or a movie is written three times. Once it's written on the page, the second time you write it is when you're actually shooting it, right? Because you're making decisions. And the third time you write it is when you're editing. And what he said, which I thought was really interesting, especially in lieu of watching this show, is that he says, oftentimes when you're editing, what you end up doing is cutting out your own dialogue because the actors are doing such a good job. They don't need all those words. And this is something that all of the people who are work on this show should have paid attention to that because there are so many words, so many pieces of dialogue that are completely unnecessary, completely redundant. They should have cut much, much of it out. It's, 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 it's nuts. It's really crazy. Oh, and one last thing to say here on top of all this other stupidity is then the show ends on a cliffhanger. I don't want to, I'm not coming back for season two. I'm sorry. This cliffhanger doesn't work for me at all. <laughs> this cliffhanger doesn't work for you. It's no. so bad. No. So bad. I thought there was a commercial break. Yes. Like, oh, <laughs> you know, commercial break. Credits. <laughs> on Hulu, I pay like the minimal amount. So I actually have commercial breaks yeah, on Hulu. Yeah. And then I run off and I, I don't know, get water or something. I thought it was a commercial break. I kept waiting. I left the room and I kept waiting and I come back in the room and you know how Hulu just goes to a different show. Yeah. I'm like, was that the ending? Then I had to rewind it. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, that's not good. Not good. That's for damn nope. sure. Nope. Nope. Exactly. The, the word of the week. Nope. 
Weren't scared though? Down in a dark hole with a, you know, corpse. The dead are pleasant. They don't talk down to you, don't talk back. They're just so peaceful. I look into their faces and it gives me hope that the next world, that the next world's gonna be the good one. Speaking of a show that has women problems, but has bypassed it by really having no women in it at all. <laughs> well, let's talk about Blackbird. <laughs> I love that show. So far, I love that show. Yeah. You know what? There is a lost conversation we have that never got published where we did discuss the first two episodes. And the reason I never published it, by the way, is just because I think it was the week that I had like 10 other segments I was going to publish and uh, it just kind of got crowded out. And also just because, you know, especially those first two episodes, it's just setting the table. We're like, these guys are good, good acting. Oh yeah. <laughs> nice cinematography, Not, nothing too <laughs> incisive in our conversation in that episode, but there's something that we did discuss there that I think pays off now. And that's the reason I wanted to bring this up on also to put something positive into the podcast after, you know, trashing the old man is that I thought the conversation that Taron Egerton a character that he's talking to the, to the prosecutor and she starts questioning him about what's his relationship with women and the relationship with his mother. And he's like, you know, I love my mom. I love all women. And I kind of hinted at there that there is something there that, you know, we even call these guys who are real cads and like, you know, really score with a lot of women. We call them lady killers. Right. And there could be something transgressive about being such a playboy, right? That he's hurting women in maybe the same way that his mom hurt his dad by philandering as well. The reason I bring that up is because here we are in episode four of this show, which I think by far is the best episode of the show. And all these thematics come out in drawing these disturbing parallels between these very different people with very different backgrounds and histories, but this same kind of toxicity. And the question it raises, and this is what I wanted to talk to you about, the question it raises pretty fascinatingly is, you know, he's a guy who's a good looking guy who was a sports star, who's charming and has all these positives. And that made him popular with the girls. But what if you're a schmo who has some of the same baggage with his mom and with some of these other things, but you had a terrible dad who's having you rob jewelry off of bodies in graves, you're not a good looking guy. And you have a handsome brother at home who's who is the jock and everything else. So where do you take all that frustration? It basically makes them these two sides of a coin in a really interesting way. This episode is great. First of all, he does comment that he reminds him of his brother. So yeah. he's relating to this guy. Yeah. He feels like he's familiar. He trusts him more than you would think. And very interesting things happen with their relationship where they look like they could be friends. Yeah, exactly. They are having really intimate, soul-bearing. Yep. They are like friends on an intimate level. Yep. Like friends for life type friendship. That's what's interesting about it. I agree is that what he has done is he is convinced. He said in the previous episode how he's really convinced even though the prosecutor herself is starting to have doubts as to whether he's not just a serial confessor looking for attention but whether he actually did this or not because there's basically alibis for all of the days of the particular murders so as she's starting to have her doubts he does not have doubts and he also obviously is making this kind of 
Hail Mary pass of getting out of prison early. So he has to believe this is true. But at the same time, as he is kind of disgusted by this character and man, after finding the worst porno stash of all times, by the way, that was pretty convinced. Very disturbing. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Even if you have no pornography around, I would reject that pile immediately. The worst pornography that was ever. like, you cannot unsee it. <laughs> Exactly. Even with all of this making him, you know, very uncomfortable, he simultaneously is repelled by this guy and having to accept the fact that he's got a lot in common with this guy, which is very, very disturbing to him, I'm sure. And I think is what's most interesting about the show uh, at this moment, actually. I love their relationship. I also like the tension that's happening with the guard. Yeah. That could not only blow his cover. He oh, could yeah. be stuck in here for a very long time. Oh, yeah. If he acts out against this guard. If that guard sends somebody to like shiv him or something and he retaliates and kills somebody in there, he could potentially be in jail for another 20 years, regardless of what this original deal was. He could die in there. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. So this is bad. <laughs> yes. Stating the obvious. But yes, this is very bad. <laughs> yep. I feel stressed for him. Yeah. So no, his new best friend, I think my prediction is his new best friend is going to wreak havoc on this guard. So I'm kind of excited for that to happen. I know it's cliche. I see it coming, but I still want to see it. The, all the relationships that are happening are very creepy, by the way. Yeah. I am creeped out. The tone of this series is... Yeah. It's it's creepy all the way through. And, you know, I'm a fan of that. I like <laughs> yeah. creepy dread. Yeah, everything, everything. I have not done any of the Wikipedia research on this case because I intentionally don't want to spoil anything that turns out. But it's pretty funny that I think I'd say for the first three episodes or at least the first two, two and a half episodes, they explicitly make us believe that this guy probably is a serial confessor and is not an actual killer but i think pretty clearly <laughs> once again with that disturbing disturbing porno stash that this guy is a killer right i've always thought he was a killer i mean i assume that too because i mean would you really make a show if it wasn't the case you know that'd be pretty boring to be like and then it turns out this guy was just a serial it was just a serial confessor and he was exonerated and now he works at a library near you <laughs> <laughs> that would yeah. not be a very interesting show. <laughs> so I did assume that eventually things were going to turn dark. But like Sona, for example, has just caught up on the show. And she started thinking, you know, reading it as purely like a fictional show that she's like, are they setting up his brother to be the killer? And maybe he knows these details because his brother was the killer. No, and, yeah, it's not the brother. Yeah. And they've never even implied that. And I know yes. this because they picked a really good actor to be the brother. There's not even a vibe anywhere in there that he could be shady he looks like here's this guy he's you know the better of the two but he's yeah. also kind of a dead-end guy because of the circumstances he grew up in he just got the better side of the coin because he happens to not be a bad-looking guy he's kind of attractive and he's doing the best he can with and he, and he, was, a he was given and he was a jock was a and went jock. to college and then nothing yeah. happened right just like a lot of I people mean, go to college he probably and... just peaked in college and now yeah. he's just trying to live his life and he's got to deal with this poor <laughs> twin does. brother yeah. who is at disadvantage in so many ways and it looks like this kid was 
picked on by his dad, probably oh, for yeah. being the least of the two brothers. Sure. He had a miserable childhood that he then justifies by saying things like, oh, you don't know. It could be really fun to grow up on a graveyard. Right. That is very interesting, by the way, to break down the episode itself. There is this really interesting motif where you see him saying, it's actually kind of beautiful if you ignore the gravestones. And that's what he's saying to- well, I, I think it's Jimmy. Jimmy. Yes. That's what he says to Jimmy. That's the version of reality saying, but then when we see the actual flashbacks, it's not what he projects. And similarly, Jimmy does the exact same thing. Jimmy's talking about his dad came home from work, still played football with him, worked hard, yada, yada, yada. And we see that part of the memory, but we also see his dad walking out and not coming back, you know, like week after week, month after month, not coming back his and his mom being like, you know, out all the time running the bar and then probably philandering it also. He did not have the version of the childhood that he projects either. So once again, drawing all these parallels between the two of them, it's, it's really interesting stuff. Both of their childhoods were so deeply disturbing because yeah. even though Jimmy had his parents around, they did a really good job of having him sitting at the window, looking out into the empty driveway, worrying. His dad was a cop. Yep. And he said he never had a best friend because his dad was his right. best friend. So imagine the worry and the stress on this little kid and, and then that happening with the mother also. Right. And he says that he never had a best friend. He never needed one because of his dad. And then we find out in reality that his dad wasn't around a lot. So he was alone a lot is the actual version of his childhood. That is a very, very bad childhood. Those are your formative years. So not good. And the other kid is told that he has to dig graves at night, but not his brother because he's the one that wets the bed. Right. He's got to rob those graves. It's so horrifying. <laughs> yes. So it's a, it's this interesting parallel they're making between these two people who on the surface are so utterly different. And we're finding out there's a lot more commonality there. And one more thing to bring up is this is across the board with all of Lit Haynes novels, by the way, it's always the sins of the father being visited upon the sons. So it's all about these sons with their toxic relationships with uh, their fathers. And I mean, that's the case with Mystic River, uh, obviously Gone Baby Gone, by the way, uh, oftentimes with these you know, bad moms as well, don't get me wrong, but there's often these men who are scarred by their relationships with their dads. And we see it here as well. He also has a problem, I think, Lehane does, in that his women characters in general are either these whores or they are like these sacrificial lambs. Like you think about the wife in like Shutter Island, which is just like an avatar for this thing that he lost, which of course she has her own <laughs> problems in that um, book. But anyway, so I think it's a, an issue with Lehane in general. Like maybe he needs to go see a therapist about his relationship with his parents. <laughs> but it is all interesting <laughs> here in this uh this show as well, that he's exploring more of those same themes. Well, I'm looking forward to whatever comes. So far, I'm very excited. I don't think it's going to go bad. I'm, a, no. I'm anticipating good. I agree. I think it's going to be a strong finish. Two more episodes, only two more episodes. All right. Great. All right. Mm -hmm. Looking forward to the rest of uh, Blackbird and looking forward to seeing you down the shore. I know. So excited. All right. It's going to be fun. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. What if I told you that today you'll leave here different? Pops. Pops! I'm talking to you. Bro, what'd you see? Something above the clouds. 
That's big. How big? Big. You think whatever killed Pops is out there? Right here, you are going to witness an absolute spectacle. So what happens next? Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Here we go. So once again, this is full spoilers for Nope. Definitely see the film before hearing this commentary. And I'm not going to break down the entire film moment to moment. So if you're here to find out exactly what happened, it's probably not going to be that satisfying. This is really more my comments based on the assumption that you as a listener have already seen the film. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, you could watch this film purely for its thriller elements. And as good as some of those sequences are, given the length of the film, I'm not sure if overall people would say, oh, I was so thrilled by the film from beginning to end. So I'm not sure how much mileage that will get you. But given the opening moments of this film, it's impossible to assume that Peel wants us to read the film at such a surface level. First of all, the film opens with a quote from the Bible from a prophet I didn't even know about until, <laughs> until seeing this quote. More importantly is the quote itself. It is, I will cast abominable filth at you, make you vile, make you a spectacle. And this prophet in the Bible, once again, something you would not know walking to the theater, such a oblique reference, even if you know the Bible, is in reference to the destruction of the city of Nineveh, yet another city demolished in the Bible by an angry God. Late in the film, we see some vile filth dumped upon the house in which our protagonists live. So this creature could be judging in some way. But the creature later in the film is also referenced purely as some kind of predator, a mindless eating machine. And of course, that draws the correlation of this film very directly to Jaws. So speaking of Jordan Peele's career and how he is correlating himself in some ways, intentionally paralleling M. Night Shyamalan's career, paralleling Quentin Tarantino's career, the filmmaker I did not want to reference at the beginning of this episode is Steven Spielberg, because we have elements here of Spielberg's Close Encounters. There's a moment early in the film where I thought this was going into a Close Encounters direction. This living spaceship feels like War of the Worlds, which was, of course, Spielberg's response to 9-11. So in some ways, another film that deals with capturing trauma on film and our need to do that. But of course, speaking of Spielberg, this is Jaws in almost every possible way. We have these folks not out at sea, but out on this remote plane where even Google Maps has really bad image quality, probably because of this electronically disrupting creature. We have these few people not on the boat, but trapped in this home. We have this early warning system of where the creature is, not of the buoys out at sea, but of these dancing inflatable men, comically, we have this eating machine not hiding beneath the surface of the water, but rather hiding in the clouds themselves up above and attacking the boat in the middle of the night, just like in Jaws, that boat being, of course, their family home, rather than the attack on the beach in Jaws because of the venal mayor wanting to have the 4th of July festivities. Instead, we have this former child actor who invites all his friends to come witness the miracle of this creature. And of course, all getting massacred. And we have the grizzled 
veteran who knows predators. He basically just spends his time documenting these images of anaconda attacks, etc. And of course, coming face to face with the biggest predator of all correlates to Jaws. And just like in that film, they both get eaten by the predator. So you could really just go beat by beat and see all the correlations here with Jaws. But the creature itself, by the way, interesting design here of the creature, is more an octopus than it is a shark in that it camouflages itself and, of course, makes itself much bigger than it actually is using these sails that it has to float around. The way that an octopus will change its shape to hide its identity and to protect itself from potential assault. Because deep down inside, this creature is actually pretty fragile. Also like an octopus, the mouth and the eye are basically coincide. But that's not the only thing that's going on here in this film. It's not just a Jaws riff. It's not just the thriller. Once again, let's go back to that beginning. We have the opening quote. Judgment is coming to this city of sin and debauchery. We also see very importantly, an incredible sequence, by the way, and very mysterious. This whole opening segment is so amazingly, tantalizingly mysterious, and the film really can't pay it all off. But this flashback to the assault, this animal attack on the set of the sitcom, just incredibly well done. But what does that say about the film itself? Yet again, another creature like the horses, like this chimpanzee, and like this creature that humans in their hubris think they can control this force of nature, this eating machine, that's something completely unnatural in controlling and domesticating something that is not, that is wild, and this sense that you can contain it. You can turn it into a product. You can put it in a TV show or put the horse in a movie. But that's not the only thing that's on the mind of this film as well. Inside that creature, we find out only at the end of the film that we have been seeing this creature or that we've seen this creature from the very, very beginning during the title sequence of the film. Deep inside this creature is a screen. And what do we see in that screen? We see the very first moving image, this collection of still images of this horse riding being written by a black jockey, a very famous piece of film historically that this experiment to see how do horses run and discovering that horses basically have all four of their feet off the ground at the same time, which was basically was trying to be discovered in the course of this little piece of filmmaking. But this discovery that putting these still images together in sequence, create a motion picture created this whole entire language of film. And this film, like so many films are, is about what is the value of filmmaking itself, of capturing images for better and for worse. And we see it all play out here. On a negative side, this is something that is barely addressed within the context of the film, but worth considering is the fact that why of all possible backdrops that Jordan Peele could have selected for his protagonists is that they are in Hollywood, wrangling horses, this mostly black cast. Why would that be the case? The reality is that something like 25% of all cowboys were black. And in Texas, for example, around 50% of all cowboys were black. In that period of time between the advent of filmmaking, the early 1900s and post-Civil War. The point is that probably shocks a lot of people because that is not the image we have of the Old West. We see John Wayne and all these white actors colonizing the West. And there is basically complete erasure of any kind of minority, except for Native Americans who were monsters coming off the hills. Of course, we don't mention the fact that they didn't live up in the hills. They were driven into the hills by the westward expansion. They were kicked off of their homelands and were simply fighting to reclaim their homes. The reason we don't see this, the reason we don't know this is that regardless of what our history books tell us, 
The simple fact is that what we've seen in movies has erased all of that, erased all of those facts, erased all of those newspaper articles from that period of time, erased all the photographs that existed because photographic technology already existed back then. That's all been erased by the popular mythology of the West. And this brother and sister duo, Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer's characters, are obsessed with creating an image of this creature, of in some way reclaiming the image that the very thing that has erased aspects of our cultural history, the mythologies that we create, there's this desire to use the same technology, to use those same images to create their own narrative. Now, this is not the only criticism we have here of images and filmmaking. We have the entire Steven Yeun character himself. We see this incredibly dramatic backstory of this animal attack during the making of his sitcom. And rather than this basically making him want to quit the business and basically never <laughs> work in this town again. Instead, he uses this, this massacre, as his one tenuous grasp at maintaining any amount of celebrity. Very telling, by the way, of how images distort our own memories of things. He is unable to describe what he witnessed on set. Instead, he talks about a skit on SNL, a comedic skit of the animal attack. That is a complete whitewashing of this utterly traumatic event we see in flashback. But he is not even able to relate to his own experience. He can only relate to it via this secondary image. And in some ways, he's incapable of processing his trauma because of the popular image of it. And everyone is addicted to this image, this video footage, this film footage of the creature that will make them famous, whether it is the grizzled old cinematographer who eventually is consumed by this very creature, or whether it is the TMZ motorcyclist that shows up very strangely, by the way, this sequence didn't work for me at all, but he shows up. Peel is definitely playing on our expectations here, bringing him in as some kind of Terminator from the future or something. And it turns out he's just TMZ. He's just a TMZ reporter who's trying to get that image first and is way more concerned with preserving his footage than he is with preserving his life. And that kind of goes across the board for everybody in this film. This obsession with creating an image and how that image itself has replaced the real world. Other riffs on that theme are the fact that needing real horses on sets is not necessary anymore because of CGI. So once again, the virtual replacing the real. We also see a scene where everybody except for Daniel Kaluuya in a room is wearing a VR headset because once again, being in a room together is not enough. You have to be in a virtual space together. So there has to be this added layer to our experience of reality, if we want to experience reality at all. Now, the creature itself, interestingly, is recording images. If we are to take the opening segments there, literally, it has this very first image, this very first moving image trapped inside of itself, as if this thing was birthed by that first moving image and has been collecting images ever since. If we think of it that way as a child that's been raised on too much media, a manifestation of some kind of all this media that it's consumed, and it does regurgitate, literally, the sounds and the things that it consumes, weaponizes them against those that seek to capture its images as well. Steven Yeun's character even calls it the Watchers, assuming that it is little green men, not realizing that it's just one single creature in the, in the sky. And of course, he's obsessed with being watched. He misses the limelight, the possible, his brief moment of fame on this hugely popular show, which of course was derailed by the tragedy there on set. So what happens when 
the watcher becomes watched? Does it attack? Does it turn on he who watches them? Of course, this raises questions of the whole photographing, the whole obsession with surveillance as entertainment. So, for example, on the shows like Cops. And of course, in more recent times, the reversal of that, when we suddenly all have cameras on our bodies, we as individuals have the power of surveilling the surveillers. But that's a double-edged sword in this film as well. It can be empowering. If we can capture that image, we can reveal what the watchers are actually up to. But obsessing on that image as a commodity can be toxic as well. If we read this as this metaphor for the toxicity of chasing after the attention of the viewer, we have Kaluuya's character at one point specifically saying we need to feed it. And as long as it's fed, it's content and stays relatively out of the way. But this attention creature, this viewer, needs to be fed and it's voracious. The more it eats, the more it wants to eat. But pursuing it leads to death and destruction. And it'll turn on you. It will spew vileness at you. And it'll destroy you. It'll consume you and literally kill you, as fame often does and has many times before. So there's the empowerment of chasing this imagery. And then there is that toxicity of it as well. Cleverly, we do see that Kiki Palmer has this way of creating these multiple still images that theoretically could be linked together into a potential moving image, these Polaroids, and this giant eye, another giant eye in the ground, taking these pictures and capturing the one final image of this creature before it gets blown up. Once again, the parallel to Jaws, we see the shark exploding at the end of that film. We see this creature exploding at the end of this film. And we have this high noon motif. Not only do we have this galloping chase at the end of the film, the stakes, the crazy, <laughs> strange stakes of this film that has life and de death stakes, the real stakes, are to capture this image, which is the irony of it, that we risk our lives for, not for real things, but for just capturing an image of something because of what that thing might represent in the future or in history. Just once again, being able to own your own image, own your own narrative. Is that worth risking your life for? That's a an open question here at the end of the film. And of course, Kiki gets to play the sheriff in the middle of town, the high noon face-off shootout, where she gets the shot, they don't call it a shot for nothing, and kills her opponent. Or at least, is it dead? I'm not sure. I would definitely go to see if it crashed down on the, this is the sequel, <laughs> but I would definitely go and see where it landed, where it crashes down based on the photographic image. And it seems like a lot of people probably got a view of it, considering all the police rolling up there at the end of the film. Maybe a scientific crew can go out there and see what remains of this thing. But that's another irony now. Getting the shot, making the shot, the shootout at high noon. So all these themes are dense and complex and interestingly developed here. I can imagine a whole class, just like there is a whole class, by the way, in UCLA on the film Get Out. There'll be a whole film, a whole class on this film as well. And me discussing it here, me, me making these statements out loud and thinking them out makes me appreciate the construction of the film, which, by the way, is extremely well constructed, beautifully photographed, these beautiful IMAX images of these landscapes and big open skies, the very interesting creature effects, these very tense action sequences, and just extremely disturbing imagery, specifically in that flashback to the chimpanzee attack on that sitcom set. And these themes, these themes of the erasure 
of black history from the West, the empowerment of owning your own images, but the seductiveness of replacing history with those very images, this toxic need to draw the public eye and the hubris of humans in being able to somehow contain something wild and put it in a little box and put a price tag on it and think that we can control it that way. Those themes don't seem like they would mesh as interesting as they are. And honestly, they do not mesh. That's my opinion. They don't mesh. They work against each other. And it makes this a very tantalizing stew of ingredients. And yet, honestly, not that satisfying. All that being said, I would much rather have somebody swing for the fences and miss and give you a mixed bag, a film that fails at being as entertaining as it could be because it has way too much on its mind. I'll take that over some dumb, half thought out action film any day of the week. I just do hope that Peel in his next project is able to recapture the elegance of Get Out in finding a theme and a story that are so in line with each other that delving deeply into its themes only enriches the experience of watching it rather than these two things feeling to bump against each other. So that's my, I was going to say final analysis, but there will probably be more analysis in the future on this film. <laughs> There'll probably be much more to think about. I've only seen it once and I just saw it recently. So there's much more to think about here. And maybe we will circle back to it once it's available on streaming. Maybe I'll have a roundtable of viewers come onto the show and we can have a broader conversation about it.